0: Verge podcast with Milan. Well now we've got Francisco Jimenez on the show today. For listeners not familiar with Francisco, who is he?
1: I am incredibly excited to welcome Francisco to the show today. Francisco is a partner on the investment team at 8VC, where he focuses on bio-IT, health-IT, and enterprise AI investments. Francisco was previously the resident data scientist at Formation 8.0 and was previously the founder of uh, Catius Science, a data science consulting and recruiting firm that helped early-stage companies build data science teams. He has a Ph.D. in biomedical informatics from Stanford, where he was a Ruth Kirstein Fellow, and he was the commencement speaker for the Stanford School of Medicine in 2015. He earned his B.S. in electrical engineering and computer science from UC Berkeley, doing research in Parkinson's disease at UCSF. So I'm incredibly excited to welcome Francisco to the show and talk about what he and 8 are investing in within the tech bio ecosystem.
0: Francisco became a venture investor after living in the tech bio world before tech bio was a thing. He was working in bioinformatics. What's happened to bioinformatics during the past decade?
1: Yeah, it's a good point, Danny. I think Francisco was probably in the bioinformatics space before that was a sexy area. Uh, I'm excited to ask Francisco his point of view about the advances he's seen over the past 10 or 15 years, because I I know that – when he was doing his work and he did a lot of work focused around clinical decision support for radiology, I mean, the technology has grown in leaps and bounds since, since when he was first doing it as, as a student. So really excited to get his perspective on how far the field has come, what the technology is being used for today, and then really what he is particularly excited about in terms of their investment thesis at 8VC, the different verticals they're investing in how AI plays a role across these different verticals within healthcare and some of the companies that they've invested in.
0: How unusual a path was his to becoming a a venture investor and how, how valuable do you think his background might be in regards to making investment decisions?
1: Well, I'm sure his background colors a lot of his investment decisions, but you know, there there's no one way to get into the venture world. There are just lots of different paths for partners to get into the the VC ecosystem. And so you know, I think Francisco has a very specific niche based on his education, his interest, what he's done in the past. And I think, you know, that helps inform where he focuses as a partner on the investment team. Right. I mean, he, he focuses on, as I mentioned, bio IT, health IT, AI investments, And so obviously his background is perfectly suited to those areas. And so I'm really excited to talk to Francisco today about some of the technology trends that he's seeing, some of the investments that they've made and and what he is most excited about for the future.
0: What else are you hoping to hear from him today?
1: Yeah, I I actually want to talk to Francisco a little bit about the tech bio ecosystem and how that compares and contrasts to traditional biotech venture creation. Because I feel like Francisco probably has a, a pretty good perspective on that. And that's A topic that I'm just endlessly fascinated by. So I I really do want to reserve a little bit of time to, to touch on that.
0: Well, if you're all set.
1: Let's do it, Danny. Francisco, I am incredibly excited to welcome you to the show today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We are going to talk about your own path to becoming a VC, your investment approach, and how technology is transforming biotech. You earned your BS in electrical engineering and computer sciences from UC Berkeley, and then received a PhD in biomedical informatics from Stanford. I'd like to start with your own journey, and specifically, what drove your interest in biomedical informatics?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know, my, uh, let's start maybe at the the academic side of things. Uh, but uh, I entered into electrical engineering and computer science uh, at Cal. Honestly, it seemed like an interesting space, but I was 18, so I didn't know better, and really liked the concept of AI, which in 2005 was uh, kind of a non-starter field. So spent two and a half years in undergrad doing school and uh, would say I was... Mediocre at best it, in in my schooling, and I think it had a lot to do with the fact that it, it wasn't really applied uh, in the real world. I enjoyed programming; I could do problem sets or whatever, but did not really see kind of a, a purpose to to a lot of what I was learning. I was fortunate enough to be able to join a lab uh, in my junior year. I took uh, a semester off, and I joined uh, Christoph Bankowitz's lab at UCSF, uh, in 2008, he was doing gene therapy for Parkinson's disease, uh, where you'd basically put these rigs on people's heads, uh, to insert a needle into their brain to infuse in that very appropriate region of the brain, uh, you know, a viral vector, uh, to have some transgene that had a curative effect on, on Parkinson's disease. This crazy, you know, sci-fi stuff, uh, especially in 2008. Um, And he had this need for bringing in computational talent. Uh, In large part, the lab was funded by Andy Grove, who was in that window of time saying that bio needed computers and they were doing everything wrong. Uh, And they brought me in to kind of help usher in that wave. And so I spent a lot of time doing everything from basic IT work like fixing the printer all the way through sort of consolidating the information and data storage and, and servicing within the lab and then starting to build out more tools for more reproducible analysis of the research. You know, where we were circling a whole bunch of things or registering MRIs to histopathology images and whatnot. And we could do a lot of that with image analysis, which kind of fell within my AI purview. So really loved that. Loved the work, loved the application, loved the purpose and came back to school. And it was like, I went from every class kind of being a, a box you check to graduate to kind of almost being like a buffet of things to learn, to apply to this project. And I was still involved with the lab. And so I was so like reinvigorated, honestly. And I'm so thankful to Chris for giving me that opportunity and, um, and you know, did significantly better in school afterwards. But more importantly, I was able to do uh, some really cool research and write some publications that allowed me to have a strong application to Stanford. Uh, and at that point, I'd been doing a bunch of imaging informatics, and Stanford was really the sort of foremost imaging informatics program in 2010. Um, and so I went to Stanford. I was very lucky to get in. Uh, I attended and Again, it was kind of the same concept of AI in 2005, but image analysis in medicine in 2010 was also kind of a backwater field because the tools weren't very good and the applications were non-existent. Um, And I was, again, very, very, very lucky in that um, in 2012, obviously AlexNet won the ImageNet Challenge. And my field went from this very niche, underexplored uh, backwater of informatics to within by the time I graduated in 2015, sort of one of the fastest-growing areas of, of biomedical informatics, um, which was really funny to have that happen to me. And then my friends in sort of gene editing, who were using zinc fingers and ends, also had CRISPR come out the same year that AlexNet came out, and so their PhDs went from kind of mediocrely obsolete to like very cutting edge uh so overall it was a really really good time to get invested and involved and excited about cool applications and spaces and then getting a little bit lucky in that a lot of the research uh and tooling in those spaces caught up to the interests and and made those fields really large and so um graduated from stanford in 2015 with my phd and and uh had been in venture kind of part-time since then and went into venture full-time after that.
1: And Francisco, before we dive into what you're doing today, your initial work as a student really, and during your PhD, really focused on clinical decision support for radiology, which, as you said, was probably about 10 years or so ago. How, How do you think AI has changed and evolved since when you were doing your
2: initial work? I don't think I can possibly overstate how much AI changed in the window of time I was at Stanford. Uh, it was literally overnight. Um, you know, uh, when AlexNet won the ImageNet challenge with deep neural nets uh, in in spring or fall of 2012. You know, my thesis defense or sorry, my qualifying exams are basically you just answer a bunch of questions about the history of your field and you're supposed to know everything that ever existed in your field. My qualifying exams were around December of 2012. So a few months after that. And I like to joke that everything I studied for and everything I was questioned on in my qualifying exams was already obsolete by the time I gave them (laughs) because, uh, Deep learning pretty much overtook everything. And I got one question, my final question by Rob tipshrani at the end of my qualifying exams was asking me, uh, what about deep learning? And I kind of gave my perspective because obviously you're up close and personal. You've seen the stories and, and uh, a lot of that work came from ImageNet, which of course was done at Stanford. Um, and so I had a perspective on it and it was – I always made fun of neural nets as kind of like a joke uh, model. And and then there was work by Andrew Ng. He had this internal wiki to Stanford called Unsupervised Learning and feature Learning, which he put out in 2009, um, which showed that people were starting to think about it. And I always kind of thought it was a joke. And by when we finally saw that data, it was pretty real. And it was like 25% lower error on, on ImageNet Challenge. The following year, like both... an an equally large reduction in error, but also like the top five winning models were all deep learning models. When a year before there was only one deep learning submission. So uh, it's akin to uh, the story about like the Fosbury flop, right? Where everybody was doing the high jump in one way, I think like head first. And then uh, when Fosbury came and did his really sort of goofy way to jump over the high bar, it, was both sufficient to win when he competed using it the first time and necessary to win on all subsequent years and uh like a singular point moment where everything changed overnight um and so one thing we kind of like to think about in, in bc or like to joke about is like when has technology hit it's like what technologies have hit their fosbury flop moment where it's enough to win because it's so good. And then even to be able to compete, you have to do it that way in the future. Um, So yeah, it's, it's tough to even describe. And that was just for image top five image classification. Of course, now we're looking at like generative AI and LLMs and all this other stuff. But, but even then it was huge to see that change and you kind of knew that the world was going to change with all the subsequent applications. So Um majorly impactful how it's impacted medical imaging is, is kind of the second part um has been slower because anything with medicine and technology is slow uh, but i like to think about that bill gates quote which is uh we overestimate what we can do in one year and we underestimate what we can do in 10 years and so every radiologist you know kind of thought this is dumb the sort of cutting edge ones were like you're all out of a job and everybody was really scared about losing their jobs to ai and you know the mid like 2015 era and then they all kind of have like said you know we're not going to lose our jobs to ai now but i think we're actually getting to the point where the technology is getting strong enough to where it's it's being incorporated into sort of fringes of clinical workflows and making its way more into more interesting clinical workflows um and I like it when I see the sort of non-trivial or, or non-obvious application. So everybody can think of a mammogram going in and having AI classifier and detect whether or not you have cancer, I think, you know, um, but n- nobody, unless they've been in a radiology uh, reading room would understand the value that is optimizing hanging protocols to speed up like uh reader's ability to just look at images um, or automating report writing uh, with references within the images to sections within the images um, or references within the report to sections within the images. Um, and those are the things that get the radiologist really excited. Uh, and we're starting to see those kinds of interesting innovations start to hit. And, and uh, I'm very excited about what the next uh, few years hold for that transformation. <laughs>
1: So Francisco, a lot of great stuff to dive into there. And I love the analogy of the Falsberry flop, which I, I wasn't familiar with that term before, but I certainly know what, what you're talking about. That was just a, you know, an incredible moment, I think, of transformation. So let, let, let's dive into that a little bit and let's get into your investment approach, some of the recent investments you've been involved with, but before we dive into the specifics, let's let's start from the thirty thousand foot vantage point. Can you start by talking about your investment thesis generally at Eight VC as as a firm, and then we'll get into some of the specifics around the healthcare and the life sciences?
2: Yeah, so Eight VC uh, as a firm, right? So we've been, or Eight VC has existed since twenty sixteen. Uh, we were. Uh, the same team that was working together at formation eight uh, which has been around since 2012. um and i think that uh the initial thesis was essentially we didn't call it as such but as vertical saas uh at the time joe called it the smart enterprise um and it was basically like there was all these consumer technology companies like google facebook whatnot had all the best technology weren't the largest part of GDP at that moment. And then we had the major areas that were kind of untouched by technology. And once again, this is like 2011, 2012, um, or or next-gen technologies, uh, like in insurance, like in banking, uh, healthcare, uh, you name it, they weren't adopting these really innovative technologies. And so Joe's perspective was, the next decade we're going to see this confluence of factors of like, Cloud software, um, better databases, better ways to do analytics, ma- better use of data to have these nonlinear increases in, in productivity of a company. Um, and we need to be investing in companies that do that transformation. And so, which now is very blase because vertical SaaS is literally what everybody wants to invest in, uh, in the sort of software sector. Um, I think we started opening up our aperture. Uh, to this notion of beyond just software and cloud software, but more broadly into when are there technical technological innovations that can transform large and existing facets of the modern day economy? Um, so what we're never going to be great at, although some people are, are, are learning about it, we always try to learn, but we, what we haven't been great at is things like consumer tech or, or uh, net new like market creation systems. What we're very good at is understanding very large and unsolved problems in the world today and then mapping that to novel technological innovation and using that tech innovation to solve those big meaty problems. And it's kind of like how um uh uh, richard hamming used to say his his uh the way you should be thinking about your research in his famous article you and your research was you have to know the top 10 problems in your field and every time you learn something new you test it against one of those 10 problems um and that's constantly the way we're thinking is we have to know the top you know n problems in sort of modern society and we have to constantly be staying on top of novel technology and seeing if it can solve one of those problems. Um, and so it's really, where does tech bring an advantage and novel technology bring an advantage to solving meaningful problems in the world today? Uh, one question that Joe always makes us answer before we start diving into a, a company is, you know, what's possible now that wasn't possible five years ago that makes this company um Makes this company work now, uh, and if we can't answer that, then it might be an incremental type of company, or it might it might be a great company, just not you know one that a VC should invest in, right? You can you can start a restaurant and and have it be valuable, or uh, a fast food franchise or something, and that was possible fifty years ago just as it is now, and you can make a great cash flowing business. But it's really about what's possible now that wasn't possible five years ago, and that generally means technological drive. So. That's the broad spectrum of ABC and what's core to our DNA, um, and then well, maybe I'll pause there and then I can speak to how how life sciences flows uh, out of that. Yeah, th- that was going to be my follow
1: up question. So, how how does that thesis as a firm then apply to the life sciences and healthcare verticals?
2: Um, yeah. So basically, so our life sciences team is about twenty five percent of the fund, and. Uh, It's the same concept. Where does technological innovation transform or solve the meaningful problems that we're facing in life sciences today? That comes in two aspects uh, or two arms to our thesis. One is what we call the the applications of the life sciences and the other, the infrastructure of the life sciences. The applications are all the sort of end products that come out of life sciences R&D and d so therapeutics is is pretty much the major weight there. Uh, but then, you know, diagnostics, devices, and other kinds of, of products that we apply to to patients. Um, and then the infrastructure of the life sciences is all the tools, services, and, and technologies that we want to invest in that actually make R&D better, faster, cheaper, more productive. And so that's everything from early stage preclinical or even academic R&D tooling systems like novel sequencers or or single cell analytic systems through um, data management at the sort of life sciences level, imaging data management, signal data management, genomics data management, and analysis therein uh, to clinical trials enablement, better ways to run clinical trials, which are the most expensive part of a drug discovery uh, motion Uh, better tools to commercialize those and bring those to patients and then better ways to manufacture those at scale. Uh, And then furthermore, it's kind of, then we start overlapping with healthcare services and healthcare delivery, which my partner, Sebastian does a fantastic job on. And there's kind of a gray area between when does, you know, say pharma and life sciences stop and healthcare services begin. And there's cool stuff that overlaps in, in that area. So all of that is what we would call the infrastructure component and those are really cool because they feed in together a great company that has great infrastructure enables novel biotherapeutics companies and if we're doing our job right allows us to see into the future or like that old saying like the best way to predict the future is to invent it and so when our technologies that we invest in the infrastructure side open up new areas of of therapeutics or devices or diagnostics we should be the first in line to figure that out. And then when conversely, our products companies, our therapeutics companies are um, encountering similar problems or teaching us about a space that that we think there's huge inefficiencies in, we're very primed to think about infrastructural companies. So the example of that is, for example, with a lot of cell therapy company investments, all of them universally have huge issues with manufacturing. It's very expensive. It's hard to do. Um, and so we have invested in in cell therapy manufacturing companies Uh, and the more you invest in a cell therapy manufacturing company the more you learn about cell therapies out there that need these technologies so you're more primed to think about great cell therapies to invest in and so these circuitous or virtuous loops uh, really help educate us (laughs) and so overall it's it's that it's these two arms to this notion of tech innovation solving the life sciences and that's solving it for patients through products, and solving it through infrastructure, and then having both of those components teach us about the other.
1: Francisco, I love the the synergy between those two arms that you just described. Let's go ahead and dive into some of the examples you just highlighted. So one company that comes to mind when you're talking about manufacturing infrastructure is a company that you had a hand in establishing, National Resilience. Yeah. Can you explain what resilience is and, and how it came about?
2: Yeah, so resilience is um, a like you said, it's kind of a broad spectrum biologics manufacturing like network, uh, and it really came out of uh, like January twenty twenty COVID years, right? And we were catching up with Bob Nelson at arch and of course he's uh incredibly well connected to the world and hyper paranoid about infectious diseases and so he was very very early on identifying uh, the importance of covid and, and the the fear there and his intuition here was that if you looked at the first sars outbreak um country before Before it kind of became a major outbreak, he was saying how so many countries were uh, stockpiling vaccines and therapies uh, for an eventual outbreak. And if you realize that these things are really – and obviously we've seen since then how destructive to an economy an outbreak is – Every country is acting very rationally to want to nationalize any therapies being made on their soil for their citizens. And in the US, we did not have onshore manufacturing at scale of um, any of the technologies that were going to get us out of of COVID. And at that time, we knew, for example, Moderna was working on a vaccine. We didn't know if it was going to work, but it was... We'd also known that the fastest we'd ever developed a vaccine in history was four years. And so the, the only thing that was going to get us somewhere quickly was the mRNA vaccines. And Bob was like, there's no way anybody can make mRNA vaccines at the scale we need today. And so he wanted to put something around some novel technologies he'd found. And then he was also thinking, "I this needs to be a tech company, or it needs to have components of software technology to integrate uh, all of these different manufacturing sites, we want to kind of not just have mRNA, but also biologics, uh, viral vectors, and lenti, and all these other things. Um, and we should be able to manufacture these all of these on U.S. soil and have a robust and resilient system to do that. Hence, the company's name, National Resilience. And you know, we had experience in building large companies like that, both from. You know, kind of the DNA that comes from Palantir that is now at ABC, but also just because we invest in a lot of companies that look like this. So we worked with Arch as co-founders to build this up. You know, obviously raise a bunch of capital was a heroic amount of work by Bob and my colleague Drew, Uh, and then um, put the pieces in place to make it look like a tech company. Uh, Which is, you know, how do we have digital be a very important part of this? How do we have um RD uh building greenfield technologies five years out while also um being able to incorporate technologies today to kind of scale that out. Uh and so that's what we put in place together. We kind of us kind of bring the sort of tech perspective and Bob bringing you know the infinite connections that Bob has in uh the life sciences world. Um and uh was kind of off to the races in terms of Rolling up a bunch of facilities, bringing them into the resilience network, and then having this distributed manufacturing uh, network for for the world. And for the US, and then you know broadening that to the world, which I think other people have seen and have wanted resilience to kind of clone itself in other locations.
1: Yeah, and I think that's such a, a powerful story. And and you know, to my knowledge, a lot of what resilience is is doing is 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 trying to bend the cost curve on on some of these novel modalities that are being manufactured, selling gene therapies, right? And and so hopefully being able to bring those to a larger patient population in the future, we could probably spend the rest of the show just talking about resilience, but I do, I do want to talk about some other investments that you've made and particularly about your thinking and deciding to back those companies. So, you know, feel free to pick anyone you like. I I know you're also incubating a company now, so would love to learn more about what what you're incubating now as well.
2: Yeah. So, um, man, there's a lot of companies in the portfolio, Uh, (laughs) but I would say that, um, so is a great example of infrastructure. I think, uh, you know, in therapeutics, we've done a large amount of cell therapy companies and our perspective has been um, our immune system is composed of a bunch of immune cell types for a reason. And we should be looking at each individual, one of those cell types uh, as its own company. You know, there's going to be sort of your standard CD8 T cells, but then there's going to be NK cells, uh, there's going to be myeloid cells, there's going to be uh, INKTs, Gamma Deltas, Tregs. Um, And our perspective was um, we wanted the people who were best able to tune and engineer each of those, Uh, and so that was kind of how we invested in that space, is who did we feel had the most comfort sort of making it scale, for example, INKTs or uh, best tuning uh, uh, and targeting NK cells. Uh, And so like the former being sort of Appium making INKTs really, really beautifully, Senti kind of having a lot of logic circuits that allow them to do NK cells, Lyell kind of doing exhaustion-free CD8 T cells or uh, Jeff Bluestone at Sonoma doing Tregs. Um, all of these were kind of luminaries in their spaces uh, going after each of these individual uh, cell types. Um, so all of that together is really exciting because each cell type kind of opens up its own series of possibilities to go after. So we were really intrigued by that. Um, then kind of on infrastructure side, uh, that's where all of these companies are so hard that we started saying like, uh, like cell type manufacturing is hard. So then we thought a lot about like Synthigo, who makes reagents for CRISPR as, and then also using those tools and reagents for CRISPR to actually engineer the cells themselves, like at the sort of academic uh, sphere. And so what an interesting application and, and use of technology to uh, have all the informatics and tooling to do precise edits on cells and just sell engineered cells to researchers, uh, which was really fantastic. And then, Uh, solaris building out a full cell shuttle to do gmp grade manufacturing of uh, adoptive cell therapies and kind of building one of the most beautiful boxes i've ever seen uh their cell shuttle to kind of do this at scale um and then invested in soleno who is taking advantage of of their sort of manufacturing system really to focus and double down on uh Reprogramming iPSCs, so uh, somatic cells into iPSC state, and then doing all the relevant engineering on those iPSCs to make them, you know, therapeutics, which is outside of the realm of like what we think of as standard cell therapy manufacturing. And then, of course, resilience kind of doing a lot of the sort of cell therapy manufacturing, but then also broad spectrum biologics manufacturing and partnering with a lot of these technology companies. So those are. Two major areas we covered a lot of ground in over the past few years, to, and, and really have uh, feel very strongly about our exposure uh, to to the universe. Cell therapy is
1: an area that's near and dear to my heart, given the, the time I spent at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. So, I, yeah. for one, have been really excited to see you investing heavily in the space and investing in the infrastructure to support a lot of these novel modalities, because you know, we know that the infrastructure and manufacturing tends to be a major bottleneck. So it's been exciting to see your, your pace of investment in the space. Um, I, I do want to take a step back, though, and, and look at it from sort of a, another sort of high-level perspective. What makes an 8-VC investment in your mind? And without giving away your secret sauce, is, is there anything you look for in a company that might not be on a typical VC's checklist?
2: Um, yeah, so... I'm well I'm always happy to give away my secret sauce because even <laughs> if somebody if somebody steals your ideas that just means they're agreeing with you <laughs> and uh we, we need more more allies than enemies especially when we're kind of looking at solving human health. Uh I think the flavor of investments that we do is really if I boil it down is where is an engineering approach an advantage in the life sciences that's kind of a question we ask ourselves constantly that i think we have a, a very great eye for understanding engineering approaches in the life sciences and understanding when they're truly differentiating and advantageous versus incremental and When we find a company where engineering is is really a a full change improvement in the status quo, that's where it gets us really excited. Now, I'm using the word engineering in a kind of very fuzzy context because, well, we like to keep it that way. It does not mean um, computational drug discovery, which is kind of what everybody starts to spring to mind when they think about it. I don't even think it reduces uh, our scope to tools or methodologies in particular, like the, it does not have to use computers or, or, or robots or whatever. All of those things are enabling towards what I think engineering is to me, which is um, process that's guided by fast iteration uh, with monatomic improvement in each iteration cycle. And I think that um, there's, science is always about iteration, but it might be over slow iteration cycles. It's kind of like a very binary frequently, like, can I prove my hypothesis or not? So we throw bodies at the bench to kind of prove that out? And of course, people need to try and try and try again. So that's not to say there is isn't iteration, but how do you do that at scale? Uh, Where does speed of iteration actually provide a competitive advantage? And then if you find and identify a space for speed of iteration is a competitive advantage uh, in the life sciences, you almost necessarily start using the tools that that are, are rem- like a, a evocative of, of engineers, right? Robots, computers, data science, AI, and all that stuff, because those things speed up iteration cycles. Um, but if you were able to say to a scientist, like you can do, you know, a thousand experiments in a week versus five how much better is your science if they said moderately then that's not a space we're going to invest in still could be a very valuable space it's just not something we're going to touch because it doesn't align with how we think about building companies um and so i think a lot about uh john boyd's work kind of in the air force when he conceptualized this notion of OODA loops observe orient decide act for fighter pilots uh, which is the four-step process a fighter pilot has to do before every sort of action they make. And then coming to the very clean and neat conclusion that you'll probably win in a dogfight if you can run OODA loops faster. Uh, And so the speed of doing those iterations is the difference between life and death. Uh, And I love looking at companies where they identify a space where Speed is a factor of winning, and then they figured out a way to go faster or, or iterate faster. Really, so um, that's the core of how I think we approach the life sciences, both in infrastructure and therapeutics companies.
1: Francisco, let's let's take this one step further because a lot of what you've described this engineering approach to the life sciences is generally become what has now known as tech bio, I think, in in many instances. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on what you view as the similarities and differences between traditional biotech investing and company creation, like what the flagships, the Third Rocks, the Atlases of the world are doing, yeah. and what you're doing at Eight VC, or or even more generally, what constitutes a tech bio investment, in, in particular, particularly from a, a structural perspective. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm thinking of things maybe like ownership details, or even the age of the yeah. founder, or things like that.
2: Yeah, um, I think the structural things are way easier to answer than. Than the sort of philosophical ones and and i think uh, uh twitter is is certainly uh kept interesting by <laughs> by, people, by traditional biotech like bruce booth uh fighting with uh one of the tech bio folks uh, on twitter which is infinitely entertaining <laughs> um so i like the idea of like nerdy east coast west coast uh, rap feuds um which is functionally what what this sometimes feels like uh but um okay so structurally though i would say that um your traditional uh vc firm that focuses on venture creation right in, at, in your atlas flagship third rock um longwood so on and so forth um Typically takes a large. I mean, they're co-founders of the company, but also take a large lion's share of of the cap table upon founding because they are effectively the founders and operators of the company, right? And so, frequently, it's academic, really smart science, really smart paper. Once to stay in academia, they're out licensing all their IP uh, into uh, these company into these companies, and then the venture creation together um that's a fantastic model and it was born of of sort of a necessity back in, in the global financial crisis uh obviously genentech was was the initiation of that but i think really institutionalized with, with sort of those groups around 2008 um uh and i think that's that's fantastic the the rate limiting step though is time and bandwidth and skill in those groups um you know we do venture creation as well like 25 percent of our fund is earmarked for building companies and you know back of the envelope you lose about a year of your time as an investor Well, lose is probably the wrong way to say it but you are spending a year of your time building a company versus be doing looking at meaningful new deals and everybody i've ever spoken to who's done a venture creation thing in mixed funds says about the same it takes about a year to fully diligence the science uh put that seed funding together do the tech transfer build the initial team and then capitalize it with sort of a professional leadership team and so i remember talking to one person who said of a major incubation that they did uh they said doing this deal cost me four series A's, which I thought was a really interesting <laughs> perspective and way of putting it. Um, so the venture creation model, like I said, it's rate limited by how many good people they have in those firms. And uh, and I think they generate really, really interesting stuff. I don't think they cover everything interesting that could be done. And so the Silicon Valley ethos is, of course, always moving more towards decentralization and permissionless innovation versus uh, centralized innovation that requires, you know, um, going through sort of uh, existing hierarchies. That to me means how can you empower this notion of like founder driven biotech, which is such a funny way to refer to something. Cause we'd never call tech founder driven tech. It's just called tech. Um, and so, that's where you know people start companies and we invest in externally started companies, but that necessarily means we'll have lower ownership stakes, and we expect the founders to have high ownership stakes to make this their life mission and to you know be tightly financially incentivized to the success of the company um and so that's where I think about the structure. If you just look at the cap tables of these two types of companies, you can tell very quickly. Where's a founder-driven biotech versus a non-founder-driven biotech, uh, and and you know where tech bio fits in there. Something that we do is as kind of a, a way to stick to the ethos of of, of uh, how tech bio is doing it, but still also allow us to build is giving a large slug of initial ownership to um, academic founders, but also expecting them to be deeply involved in the company and not just kind of like sitting on an SAB uh at a distance and and, uh, commenting every once in a while in a board meeting but rather they're going to be on our weekly calls they're going to be commenting on the science Um, we will likely have sponsored research agreements with their labs to continue the innovation and then working with them but everybody feels deeply that they are they are tied to the mast of the ship like us um and i think that that's been really exciting and honestly a lot of the academic founders love that and wish that they had more of that as opposed to kind of, uh, uh, having their IP tech transferred away and then kind of being forgotten in the company development life cycle.
1: Francisco, you, you had mentioned that some of the structural items were a little easier to answer. I'd be curious what your perspective is on the philosophical differences. Can, can you comment yeah. on that? Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. You know, there's, oh man, Uh, well, I'll just, I'll go off the cuff here, but uh, I'd say there's a model of venture capital that is super lucrative and super consistent in its returns in biotech, um, which is, essentially the the official or unofficial build to buy kind of model of biotech um and that is if you view an exit of the company solely as being sold into pharma um you can end up hyper optimizing for that outcome and i would say that's probably the and and all the differences I think stem from from that core difference is that when tech companies, not biotech, but tech companies build a company, they build a company that's supposed to exist in perpetuity uh, as a standalone business entity, right? The the goal is to not have a a, a is to have a last time founder in that like they will never have to found another company. Like, like Larry and Sergey do not found other companies, they're not serial entrepreneurs. Mark Zuckerberg is not a serial entrepreneur, they just they built something of lasting value that they're gonna stick with forever. Um that is possible because they make money and profits and are able to stay alive <laughs> in perpetuity. Um and biotech obviously is a big cash-burning engine uh that because of of both regulatory cultural and sort of healthcare system structures makes it almost impossible for you to take a novel innovation and take it all the way through commercialization. It's capital intensive, obviously taking somebody through like a phase three trial or something. But even if you had uh, a commercial ready asset, that's about $500 million just to build up the commercial engine, just to take it to market. Um, And so that means that all biotech kind of exists at the whim of pharma buying and externalizing innovation. Um, And so if you buy into that thesis, the fact that even an IPO is just a fundraising event, but you're expected to hold until pharma buys the company, then what do you do to reduce risk? is you go straight to the acquirers and you ask them what's on their shopping list, how much they're going to spend and how de-risked it needs to be. So all of the best venture creation firms are spending an enormous amount of time talking to CSOs of large pharma saying, what's important to you? What do you want to buy? How much do you want to buy it? And under what time horizon and how de-risked does it need to be? Um, And then also saying, here's cool innovation. What do you think about this? Would you buy this? Um, But that's the market. The market for biotech is is pharmas buying biotechs. (laughs) It is not like patients are kind of a, a fundamental factor that goes into that analysis. But very few of the biotechs end up going all the way and going the distance. So that means, you know, and there's maybe 20 to 50 meaningful farmers in the market buying companies at sort of uh, prices that would be meaningful to a venture fund and so if you really think about it that means there's 20 to 50 chief scientific officers at large pharma determining every disease that we're going to cure for the next 10 years like that's kind of insane if you back into it they're they're roughly like you know, fit in my house everybody who decides what disease we're going to cure for the next 50 years for for the next 10 years. Um, And, uh, and then what you should be doing if you're playing this game optimally is getting very, very, very close to them and building what they want to buy. That creates these structures and in groups and power dynamics that are highly centralized. And, you know, everybody will speak to sort of the Boston, um, in group and and network and breaking into it and making sure you're at the right parties with the right people who have the right connections. And of course, if you come from sort of Silicon Valley Tech, if anything, we have that's like the antithesis of 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 requiring that you go to the right parties and meet the right people to have the ability to do innovation. And so to me, the tech bio ethos or core philosophy is is that of permissionless innovation, is that of let's start with meaningful technologies and think about where they can take us and which patients that they can can cure. I'm, I'm not saying traditional biotech doesn't do those things or care about patients, but there's a lot of other factors to think about it financially. But really these are these are groups of people who are like, I found this really interesting science and I want to pursue it and leading with that science and really being in love with the science and and moving it forward and bringing it to patients. And, um, and you know, that, that manifests differently. It means that like they're not raising hundred million dollar series a rounds, uh, to kind of spend on platforms, right. They're, they're frequently people in garages or warehouses kind of, doing very cheap de-risking experiments before they can move on to sort of the next de-risking event and you know raise just enough money to get into you know trials and and to some people that sounds scary they really want that crystal palace lab and they want you know old gray-haired folks uh uh designing trials and and i agree with that we don't want to just be blasting a bunch of phase ones out with like crazy you know, science but I think that the tech bio is saying there, there are more qualified people out there who can do this. And it's not just, it shouldn't be uh, there shouldn't be gatekeeping, preventing them from entering it. Um, So that's the core philosophy approach. I'm sure I've managed to probably piss off almost (laughs) everybody with that explanation, but, but it's, it's my kind of analysis of it. I think it's a great
1: analysis, Francisco, and and it's just it's so endlessly interesting to think about some of the philosophical differences and this whole new emerging genre of tech bio companies that didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago, probably not even, you know, six or seven years ago. Um, So I, I, I just I find it really fascinating I I do want to be cognizant of your time. We we could literally talk for another three or four days about some of these topics. I want to to wrap up and just ask, what are a few technology trends that you are most excited about over both the near term but then also the longer term?
2: Yeah, so from a biotech perspective, I think what I'm – quite interested and this isn't a novel answer but i think it, it still remains is uh this uh large amount of excitement and in cns indications um we have a, a lot of reasons why uh i think the fda has um dis- like decided essentially to to want to foster innovation in that space the however you feel about the the uh, efficacy or the there or was right to approve aducanumab it was very clearly a message to the world that the fda wanted more innovation in cns um we've now seen with lecanemab and we'll see soon with uh, dunanumab, the 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 amyloid beta hypothesis which i think so many people had written off is actually um um uh has legs I remember I was talking to one CSO in one of our portfolio companies and he he likes to reference the Predator and says that um, amyloid beta having, it's, the cannabab is probably not going to treat his Alzheimer's, but um, like the Predator, if if it bleeds, we can kill it uh, and has given a lot of excitement towards approaching Alzheimer's disease. Um, I think you add into that the fact that ICER is, is actually coming out pretty favorably with cost-benefit analysis of these treatments and also kind of gene therapies that are that are being used in the space. Um, we have obviously a patient population that's growing older and, and is huge unmet need. Um, and I think there's a lot of really cool technologies out there kind of allowing for this, you know, uh, in trial innovation, but also phenotyping of patients and... Um, I think that whole space is, is super exciting and it's going, and it already kind of feels like oncology did 10 years ago when people really started to, to sub-segment it and really go after it with a bunch of different modalities. So that's an indication space I'm quite excited about. Um, in terms of enabling technologies, again, this is maybe too, too traditional of an answer, but a lot of the gene editing approaches, uh, are, are super cool. Like CRISPR, RNA targeting CRISPR, base editing, prime editing, like all all those things are, are kind of at their infancy and, and we're just trying to figure out a lot of parts to it, but, uh, but the tooling is, is just opens up a huge area of, of excitement. I think the final area that one of my colleagues, Seth has really educated the rest of us on is, um, uh, the whole concept of small molecule induced proximity. So protax, right, you know, having targeted protein degradation, but but what else can we do with with induced proximity, induced uh, phosphorylation, induced methylation, and a variety of other things? And I think the tech is there, and now we're kind of interrogating all the different biology that that we can uh, modulate with this concept of induced proximity. So that's something that, that gets me really excited. So
1: many exciting areas there,
2: there, Francisco. Um, what, I think we better wrap up
1: just in the interest of time here. If people want to learn more about what you're
2: up to and what you're doing at eight VC, how, how can people learn more? I wish I would say it's like, there's reading a bunch of stuff, but, but we write stuff. It's mainly internal <laughs> or, or like LP updates. We should be publishing more on our, on our blogs, but, uh, and, and we, we kind of suck at tweeting. Um, honestly, uh, meeting with us really we, we do try to meet as many people and have a large surface area and and throw a bunch of events and go to a bunch of events. And so uh, I love throwing our ideas into the ether but but that means you're you're speaking into the ether, not listening. And I think we gain a lot more by listening to folks. And so um love to have people reach out and teach us about their spaces and why they're excited.
1: Well, Francisco, I want to say a big thank you for joining me on the show today in a really fascinating conversation.
2: Awesome. Thank you all for having me and, and you know, giving me the opportunity to speak into the to the ether, uh, but uh, <laughs> with, a, with an actual audience as opposed to kind of by myself in a basement. So, yeah, thank you guys so much.
0: What did you think?
1: I thought that was a really wonderful wide ranging discussion with Francisco. I mean, you heard about some of the companies and some of the the areas they're investing in. I love the overall synergies between the two arms of their portfolio and how some of their infrastructure investments support a lot of the investments they've made on the therapeutic side. You know for my days at at CERm. A lot of the investments that we made were in the cell and gene therapy space, and the critical bottleneck was always CMC and was always manufacturing. And so, eight VC's investment in a company like Resilience or other companies that have some of the the picks and shovels to support their therapeutic investments, I think makes a ton of sense. And it was it was really nice to hear his perspective on 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 that thesis. And then I, of course, really. Really loved his perspective on the tech bioverse, the traditional biotech venture creation model and the nuances there. I mean, he, he just has a really great perspective on both the structural differences, but then also the philosophical differences, which is just really fascinating.
0: How unusual is it to see a company take an interest in this infrastructure side like that while still investing in the therapeutic side and its approach to leveraging the insights it gets from one to the other?
1: To my knowledge, it is fairly unusual. Most investors will have more of a focus on one or the other. So we see a lot of investors that maybe invest in the enabling tools and technologies and more of the picks and shovels and stay away from the therapeutics. Or we have another bucket of investors that only do therapeutics and stay away from some of the enabling infrastructure and tools and technologies. And so it was, I think, refreshing that 8 does both because there's clear synergies between the two i think the key is to have the right members on the team to be able to understand the diligence vet those two different areas and understand how they support each other so it sounds like they obviously have the team in place to be able to do that but it, it, you know from a from a you know high level standpoint it makes a ton of sense In fact, Danny, a lot of what we did when I was at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine was not only fund the therapeutic development, but we also funded the infrastructure. And so at CERM, we had discrete buckets of funding for infrastructure programs. And that, that were things like a network of clinical trial sites that specialize in the delivery of cell therapy and gene therapy clinical trials. We had relationships with folks that could help in the in the CMC department, in IND-enabling studies. I think CIRM has a new partnership actually with Resilience to help in the manufacturing component. So we recognized at CIRM very early on the importance of providing the infrastructure support for the therapies that we invested in. And a lot of VCs aren't doing that. So I, I really like that 8VC is, is using that approach.
0: In some sense, though, what you were doing at CIRM was – solving a problem that you recognize as a market need. In another way, you can say that's what 8VC is doing by by looking at the problems the companies it's backed are facing, but is it making some kind of leap or is it looking at this as market intelligence?
1: I think it's market need. I, th- I think there's a common set of challenges and issues that companies that are developing novel modalities face. And it's oftentimes in the CMC, in the manufacturing, right? In the world of regenerative medicine and cell therapy, it's often said that the process is the product. And that's very different than the development of small molecules. And so there are critical bottlenecks and challenges that companies across the space share. And so if you can provide the infrastructure for one company to navigate some of these challenges and bottlenecks, it should scale to help other companies in the space overcome some of these challenges. There's a lot of nuances in that, obviously, but that was our thesis at CERM and and we certainly saw it play out. And it sounds like HBC is is using a very similar approach and, you know, they wouldn't be continuing the strategy if they weren't seeing it sort of reinforce each other.
0: He made this very cogent and disturbing contrast between tech and biotech and the perils of optimizing a therapeutics company for an exit through acquisition versus his notion of what he called permissionless innovation in the case of, of now tech bio companies. Are venture investors focused on satisfying the shopping list of a handful of decision makers in a dozen or so firms to get exits as he suggested?
1: Well, Danny, I, I don't have the answer to that question. I, I think it's a really interesting perspective, and it is frankly terrifying to think that there's, you know, a, a handful or whatever, a couple dozen folks that are directing the future of innovation within healthcare in this country. That 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 is a, a disturbing way to think about the ecosystem and how new therapies are developed, what indications, what therapeutic areas warrant R&D dollars. You know, I, I think in many ways, right? I mean, if you think about what VCs are in business to do is generate returns for their LPs, right? And so if you think about how to do that, you know, it's, it's, through, it's through exits. And oftentimes, as Francisco said, an IPO is not the ultimate exit for a biotech company. Right? There's a lot of value that could accrue it, once a company is public, when and if it gets acquired by a large pharma company. So there could be a lot of value left on the table if an investor exits too soon, even though there was a liquidity event. So there's certainly a lot of dynamics at play here. But it was interesting to hear his perspective about you know, they're not necessarily investing in the build to buy like the the traditional biotech VCs are. But I've got to believe, and maybe this is a naive perspective of mine, but I've got to believe that everyone at the end of the day has the patient in mind and has the patient best interest in mind. And so we're all working to build new therapies, new tools that will enable the development of new, potentially curative and life-saving therapies. And I think as long as we keep that in perspective, how you get there almost doesn't matter. The point is that we we need to collectively get there. So I think that's how, how I would tend to think about it.
0: Well, until next time. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., Investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation from family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to bioverge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by The Lead Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioBridge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.